Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family as we continue our family Bible studies in the Gospel of Matthew. Today we are in Matthew 16, one of the most important chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, and I dare say one of the more important chapters of the entire New Testament. And we're going to be talking about Matthew 16, the very famous passage where Jesus declares Peter as the rock, and he's going to build his church upon the rock, and the keys of the kingdom are entrusted to Peter. But before that, we need to get the wider context of what's going on. And there's a big hint starting in verse 13. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that the Son of Man is? And some said John the Baptist, other Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But then Jesus nails it and he goes, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied with the full confession, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And just a point of clarification, every now and then, sometimes translators trying to try to be a little helpful and smooth things along with a translation. But in verse 18, where Jesus says, I will build my church, and the Catholic edition of the RSV says, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. In the original Greek, it's much clearer, which says, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. It's very specific, and we're going to see what that means. All right. There is a big clue that is staring us in the face at Matthew 16. And it's, it's very much a, a key to understanding and fully appreciating what Jesus says about Peter and what we as Catholics today appreciate about the papacy. And if you happen to be listening, you're not a Catholic, listen closely because this is very important stuff. All right, Caesarea Philippi was a geographic region known as Basin at the foot of Mount Hermon, okay? And those of you who listen to our companion broadcast know that we deal with Catholic biblical prophecy, and we talked about Genesis 6 extensively. And I know a lot of people might have been tempted to skip, like, you know, I can understand biblical prophecy if you're talking about Revelation or First and Second Thessalonians or certain parts of the Gospels, but Genesis? Yes, Genesis. Genesis 6 is very important for understanding what's happening in Matthew 16 as well as what's happening in our world 
today. In Genesis 6, something very wicked happened that uh, helped bring on the flood. Because if you open Genesis 6, it describes the world at the time of the flood. And obviously what was going on in the world was a reason for God bringing on the, the flood. And that something wicked was that fallen angels came down, violated uh, a separation, so to speak, between angels and humans, and cohabited with human women and produced giant offspring that are known either as Nephilim or Rephaim. And the Nephilim are mentioned explicitly in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 4. Now, I know what you're thinking. This is way too weird to be true. And that's why you don't hear many people talking about this passage. But this was very commonly known among the Jews. And in the earliest, earliest Catholic church, you have the following three saints, St. Justin Martyr, St. Irenaeus, and St. Hippolytus. All three of these saints writing between the late 100s and the early 200s, this is early, early church, all believed that Genesis 6 was talking about what I just explained to you, fallen angels coming down, cohabiting with human women, violating God's decree, and producing offspring giants called Nephilim. And by the way, uh, St. Irenaeus, who is very explicit about this, is about to be declared by Pope Francis as a doctor of the church, besides being a saint and an early church apologist. So this was the predominant view of the Catholic Church until it was squashed by my hero, St. Augustine. I love St. Augustine. He provides for me, at least, a basic framework for understanding biblical prophecy, but he didn't like the Genesis 6 view I just described to you, and as a result, it kind of went into hibernation, but it's coming back out, particularly since things like the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and guess what? The people around the Dead Sea, the Qumran community, also was understanding Genesis 6, as I just described to you. And one of the reasons they did that, there's an extra-biblical book, by that I mean a book that's not in our canon of Scripture, called First Enoch. And First Enoch expanded on what occurred in Genesis 6. In Genesis 6, it's rather cryptic describing what went on, but First Enoch describes it in detail. Now, First Enoch as a book is not in our Bibles, although it is in the Bible of the Coptic Church to this day, but was widely read by the Jews, read by the Qumran community, read by early Christians, and the Genesis 6 event is described in the New Testament in the one chapter epistle called Jude, right before the book of Revelation. Jude 6 describes the Genesis 6 event that I just described to you, and then it proceeds to quote in Jude verses 14 and 15, 1 Enoch. Now, I realize you didn't hear a lot of these things, but here is why I wanted you to know this. In 1 Enoch 6, giving us a little expansive, expansive uh, details, says that 200 angels descended on Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon, uh, even following and through the Old Testament, this whole area around Caesarea Philippi, uh, 
uh, which was at the foot of Mount Hermon, was a demon-infested, idolatrous pit, so to speak. It was a geographic place of great wickedness. And in Deuteronomy 3, describes as the children of Israel were coming in to the Holy Land, it says, the Lord our God gave into our hand Og, king of Bashan, and all his people. And we smote him until no survivor was left, and we utterly destroyed them, destroying every city, men, women, and children. Now, I have tried in the past to defend what appear to be outrageous genocides uh, either done by God or okayed by God. And (laughs) this is one of the hardest things to try to defend in the Bible, thinking that these were normal folks that God just, okay, uh, you get in a warfare, the men fight each other, okay, those are combatants, uh, but what about the women and children who aren't fighting? Why would they have to be killed as well? I mean, everybody wiped out. And this isn't the only time this happened. And then you just take that in a little larger setting because a lot of people don't think of the flood in this sense because it's a little children's story with happy animals floating around in a boat like a zoo. No, that's not the point. Genesis 6 was a worldwide genocide. And that's extremely difficult to defend. It was only eight people survived. Now, if you go a few verses further, right after it says that God had the Israelites just kill uh, the men, women, and children, it says this in verse 11. Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. The Rephaim is an alternative name for the Nephilim, or those giants from Genesis 6. And it said, behold his bed, nine cubits was its length, and four cubits was its breadth. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 3 and verse 11. In other words, Og had a bed 13 and a half feet long and six feet wide. He was a big guy. He was one of the leftover mutant giants. And to put this in perspective, Christ as our Redeemer had to be fully human. He was fully God and through the incarnation, while remaining fully God, became fully man. To fully redeem us, he had to become fully human. But what happens if humans have been altered? What if their DNA, so to speak, their human DNA has been corrupted and then you have these offspring, um, you find that uh, like when the children of Israel came into the Holy Land in Numbers chapter 13, remember they sent uh, spies in to spy out the land? And they says, ooh, the land devours its inhabitants. Numbers 13, we saw in it men of great stature. There we saw the Nephilim, And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, giants again. Um, Satan had the same kind of like wicked, hybrid, um, mutant offspring of these fallen angels and women uh, in the so-called Holy Land. And the children of Israel cried all night when they saw what they were up against. 
So what's going on here? Well, God had to eliminate those who weren't fully human or else the entire human race would have been contaminated, less than human, defective, mutant, and not redeemable. And so, men, women, and children, that's why you had the genocides. That's why you had the flood. And Gath in Old Testament Israel, it's where Goliath came from. Goliath was one of these leftover mutant giants. And when David and his men killed these, I think there were four giants running around this area. So this is, this is the backdrop to Caesarea Philippi. And when Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you are the rock, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church which is built on the rock. What Jesus was doing, and by the way, the gates were defensive. In other words, Jesus, this was a very bold act. He was going right into the pit of wickedness in the so-called Holy Land. It wasn't holy at that point. He was going right in there and says, you're not going to stand against this church. Talking about the ultimate spiritual warfare. Because if you go back and read Enoch, what went on, like the whole knowledge of creating weapons for warfare so that men would kill each other, which is a obviously a demonic inspiration, came from these fallen angels. The arts of seduction for women and astrology were taught by these fallen angels. All of this stuff was a corruption of mankind. And so Jesus is saying, no, the gates of hell aren't going to withstand the church built on Peter. Now, we're going to go a little bit further and try to tie this together. We're told in Revelation 20 that there was, as a result of Christ's coming, and I'm giving you a quick summary, as a result of Christ's coming, a binding of Satan and his fallen angels. Um, these dark spirits were basically running wild over the Gentile world, and they were bound. They were bound and cast into a pit. This is figurative language. And this is spoken of in Revelation 9, Revelation 20, and 1 Enoch 10. And all of these same references speak about at the end of a very long period of Christianity, short period before Christ returns, these spirits will be released again in the world. The pit will be opened and the world spiritually darkened. And does it seem to you that the world has, so to speak, lost its mind and gone dark? I remember Dr. James Dobson once commented, which I thought was very insightful, he said, it seems like someone has gotten hold of the world's rheostat and turned it down. In other words, dark. So what are we living through? A period of that loosing, that releasing, 
of darkness in our world, or are we living through a preview of it, or uh, the real thing? I can't answer that, but something like this is going on. And what is necessary at that time? Well, the papacy. The papacy is utterly necessary to withstand this spiritual onslaught. Let me give you a historical example. Okay, in the book of Revelation, it speaks of, and different parts of the New Testament, uh, a beast having great power, the, the book of Daniel, the Gospels, First uh, and Second, Third John, all warn about an antichrist who will have the power of the world. Now, if you want a historical example of a really smart tyrant, you need to look at Otto von Bismarck. And he's a perfect example of why we need to understand what exactly is at stake in Matthew 16. Otto von Bismarck was the Lord Chancellor of Germany, and he continued uh, to lust for more and more imperial power, but someone stood in his way, and that was the Pope. He wanted absolute control. He was a tyrant. They do want absolute control. And he wanted to appoint the bishops of the Catholic Church in his empire so he could control everything. And the Pope said, no, no, it's my job to appoint the bishops. And when you had that separation of powers, so to speak, well, the Pope stood in the way of this tyrant. Now, the Lord Chancellor Bismarck was smarter than many, many Catholic scripture scholars today. He realized that he had weakened the papacy in order to expand his authority, so he hired a really two-bit theologian to come up with a new theory about the four Gospels. The new theory was that Mark was the first Gospel written and that Matthew came a good bit later and had inauthentic additions that were not from the apostles themselves. Now, do you get this? In other words, the historic tradition of the church until Bismarck was that Matthew came first. That's why it's first in the New Testament, okay? And if it was written early and written first, then it would certainly have apostolic authority. But if Mark was first and Matthew simply got his stuff from Mark and some of the apostles wanted to, oh, let's give the Pope a little extra pizzazz and let's say he's the rock here and add this little part to Matthew 16, which didn't come from God's inspiration, didn't come from the apostles, well then it didn't carry apostolic authority. And uh, Matthew 16, therefore, loses its punch. And that what blows my mind, honestly, is that this is taught in almost every Catholic seminary and college. <laughs> I cannot, it's in Catholic study Bibles. Now, Protestants have this, and Bismarck pulled this off. He basically sponsored this anti-papal theory, and guess which part of Matthew that he said was a later edition that wasn't really apostolic. Well, of course, Matthew 16. 
Because if you get rid of Matthew 16 and say, no, Mark is the way it was first. Matthew came later. Matthew had additions that weren't authentic. Matthew 16 is a case in point of that. Well, then what do you have? You have a lessening of papal authority, downplaying it, and it basically he was using that to bring the church under tyrannical state control. And any future world government is going to want to do the same. They're going to want a weakened papacy. And we're living in a day, I don't know if you're aware, but some of the leaders of dozens of countries around the world, international strategists like Henry Kissinger, are openly calling for a world government. Now, a world government would have even more authority. And what is to stand in the way of our modern world wanting to move from national sovereignty to world government and even a government that would want to control the church? Well, that would be the papacy, Matthew 16 and that the keys to Christ's kingdom. And by the way, when Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, that means he's the Jewish king that was bringing God's kingdom into the world. And obviously, uh, kings of the world are to recognize this, but even if they're in rebellion against God, the papacy has God's authority. Now, who was Peter? Peter was a fisherman. And it's not necessarily, you know, the smartest guy, the guy with the most degrees or whatever else. This is God's plan. He is going to equip Peter and his successors for having the authority to go right into the nest. You see, the rebellion that began, the rebellion against God that began in the Garden of Eden was put on steroids in Genesis 6. It got so bad that God had to basically bring his first creation to an end through the flood. It was a wipeout of everything that existed except for animal life as was preserved by Noah in the ark and Noah and his extended family. That was it. And it had to begin again because of the corruption that had spread so pervasively. And again, it was Genesis 3 and Genesis 6 led to the flood. And so we need to be aware that Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. The days preceding the second coming of Jesus Christ will resemble Genesis 6. And we need to be aware, and again, I just bring up everything about Caesarea Philippi and the Nephilim and what was going on in Genesis 6 to get to this point. If the other side, and I'm talking about the dark side, the fallen side, is going to win, it will only do so if there's a weakened or diminished papacy. Now, we're living in a day, and I'm not going to be a referee in this debate, but a lot of Catholics are upset 
with some things coming out of the Vatican. Now, if some things coming out of the Vatican in our day are in conflict with the historic Catholic faith, then it's quite simple. Oppose it. That's fine. But in doing so, don't go over the edge. And I'm fearful that some people, okay, you're opposed to something that appears to go against the historic Catholic faith. I'm not going to fight you on that. But if you want to push it a little further and try to destroy or weaken the papacy, all I can say to you is that you will help people along like Otto von Bismarck and eventually a man called the Antichrist. This is very serious stuff. And what we need is Peter so that the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, don't prevail. And Jesus was very aggressive with this. This isn't a, a shy um, Jesus, you know, hiding from the devil or something like that. He went right into it. And it's very interesting, even the same area, Caesarea Philippi, this is just a, a free bonus to this geographic area. At the very foot of the area where Jesus declared Peter is the rock, there was this high uh, plateau, huge rock formation. And at the bottom of this was an open pit that at the time of Christ, it was bottomless. It was a bottomless pit. It was dedicated to the god Pan. It was a demonic area, and it's now filled in through earthquakes and stuff, but it's still there. If you go to Holy Land, this is an area to go to, but what, what is it now? Well, right under this whole area, this backdrop to Caesarea Philippi, Mount Hermon, where Jesus went in, he, he's not being shy. He's fighting, he's active, and Peter's a part of this. Well, at the foot of this, where it used to be the god Pan, are the headwaters of the Jordan River. And when Jesus went into the Jordan River, they were sanctified. And he took care of not only making Peter the rock about what went on in the area of Caesarea Philippi and reversing Genesis 6. But when he went into those waters, he reversed original sin through the waters of baptism. And this is why we don't want to mess with the plan that God has given us. And Matthew 16, keep it front and center. It's the first gospel for a reason. And don't let anybody tell you anything different. I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 454 of Faith and Family. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org.